Greetings to you guys. Um, I'm, again, I'm an executive pastor out at New Song Church, and uh, New Song is a very unique community. It's a, uh, we call it a third culture community. Third culture is, uh, is our term for racial reconciliation and also pain and discomfort. And so kind of living in a world of uh, intersecting, multiple cultures intersecting and in- actively engaging in pain and discomfort. And uh, uh, our community is, a mul- like um, Slayton mentioned, it's a multi-site community. We've got a few multi-sites uh, locally and then a few internationally. And it's a great community. Um, I've been there for about four years, and I love it. Served as, a, as the uh, creative arts director, creative leadership director, and then now the executive pastor role. And so I'm very excited to be here this morning. Um, because I sort of live in the creative arts side, there's going to be a lot of right brain sort of concepts, creative things. And then, uh, but I also have sort of a strong left side as well. So for you left brainers that like to take notes, so right brain like to sit back and daydream, left brain like to take notes, there will be a, a, a few like tangible, practical things that hopefully you guys can walk away with today. Um, what it also means is that I'm a very visual learner, right? The, uh, uh, for me, you know, you hear people say, you know, like, leaders are readers. Well, that's a bunch of baloney, okay? And I, I'm, Brad's probably said that many times. But, uh, um, and, that, and really on top of that, really what I think a more complete perspective is leaders are learners. And so for me, I personally, I, I actually don't read a lot of books, and I actually can't stand reading a lot of books. And so I try, my goal is to read as little books as possible. Um, <clears throat> and I accomplish that goal very well. Uh, but I'm a voracious learner, and so, you know, I read a lot online, and I read, I mean, pro- probably the equivalent of many chapters a day through online, and, I, you know, I'm very actively engaging, not just movies, but like movie commentaries and museums and, uh, you know, relationships, interviews, and so I'm a voracious learner when it comes to um, leadership development and those sort of things. But I'm also a very visual learner, so for me, I learn visually. Even things like uh, presentations and all that, I can't do presentations off of written word. Everything's just pictures for me. So my goal today is that as I sort of share some concepts and ideas, I want you also to sort of learn visually and uh, feel like that, you know, uh, maybe this is a, a, a way that some of you might connect with some of you guys as well. Uh, well, for me, uh, like I mentioned in our New Song community, um, story is a very important value for us. For we, we, we really believe that your story is in, uh, your, your, the power, your power is in your story and your weaknesses are your strengths. And so we ask anyone who comes and shares to share a, a glimpse into their story and their past to kind of get an idea of kind of where you're coming from the journey of le- leadership. And so I'm going to do that really briefly, let you kind of know where I'm coming from, and share a little bit about my story. So yeah, I grew up in Texas, born and raised in Texas. Um, my parents immigrated here from Korea. Um, any Koreans in the audience? I don't know if I see. I see a lot of white folks. I don't see a lot of a uh, uh, Close enough. There you go. My brother over there. What's your name? Rob. Rob? All right, I'll take you, man. So Rob and I. <clears throat> um, anyway, so yeah, grew up, uh, my parents immigrated here about a year uh, before I was born and grew up in Texas, Dallas. That's where my house was. And uh, I grew up in a very traditional Korean household, which in an 
Asian, typical Asian household meant a strong emphasis on academics, math, science, uh, high performance, low relationship, low uh, value in the arts. And, uh, you know, because they wanted me not to grow up to be a, uh, in the creative arts, they wanted me to grow up to be McSteamy. Okay, this is who they wanted me to be. You know, doctor and, and just, you know, successful and my own TV show, all that stuff. So, um, but for me, growing up in a traditional Korean household and then also in a predominantly Caucasian community, you know, it really led me to a lot of confusion about what it meant to sort of live out the American dream. You know, what is this sort of, you know, uh, help me as I navigate through the American dream? I was very, it was a very confusing time for me. And so, you know, I felt really uh, very much sort of in one foot in this world and one foot in the other world. And so, you know, it was, it was a very difficult time. And so growing up in a, again, mentioned in a, as a minority in my community, you know, it, it, childhood was tough. You know, you get picked on and you get, you know, you stand out and you're, you know, having to defend yourself early on. But it's okay because early on I, you know, kind of buckled up and I learned to not only defend myself, but also to be an advocate for those who couldn't defend themselves. But, you know, uh, growing up in a typical uh, Korean household also meant that uh, my parents were working a lot, working like crazy, working, the, you know, night shifts. And what it meant for me was coming home and basically being a latchkey kid, me and my, me and my older brother. So we came home to an empty house, and we kind of learned to entertain ourselves and, and, and um, care for our own needs. And the most difficult part of that is that, you know, I didn't have the typical uh, house uh, relationship with my parents, especially my dad, where I was able to really learn from him the basics of life of, you know, riding a bike, throwing a football, the facts of life, the sex talk, all that stuff I, you know, I completely missed out on because my dad and my mom were always, were always working. Um, they're good people. Uh, they really encouraged us to, like, go and get involved in church and do good things, but Really, the, the truth and spirit of God wasn't really in them, and they were just doing it because going through the motions is what you do to be a good person. So, you know, I'd go to church and check it out, and it didn't take me very long to realize that church is boring, right? It is terribly boring, and I don't know why anyone goes to church. And so even as a, a teen, I found myself, when church is boring, what do you do? You skate, right? So I skated and got involved in that and got all crazy. And, and you know, so Sundays I'd be kind of good Christian boy, and at night I'd be like partying like the Sims, right? And I'd be like working it. And which was fine uh, for a little while, but you know, I really realized I really developed sort of this duality complex where I'm like living this Christian world on one end and then living like kind of the, uh, just living like a hellion on the other days. And you know, I really developed sort of, I became a hypocrite really is what it became to my, to my friends. And uh, I think worst of all, um, during this whole sort of time, I really kind of developed an identity crisis and really trying to discover uh, who am I, you know, and I, culturally and artistically and as a leader, as a Christian, uh, as a member of the community, who am I? And there were three particular areas that uh, particularly I wrestled with. First one is as an artist, again, in the uh, arts or in the Asian community, the arts is sometimes very ele highly elevated. So I, I felt like God had given me a gift in the area of the arts and creativity, but it was, be it was unnurtured, it was unidentified, and I really wrestled with what am I going to do with um, the arts. I graduated as a uh, graphic design degree and 
uh, was an art director for a little while. And even as a designer graduating college, my, the best way my parents could describe what I did was they said, Tony, he just draws. Right? That's, that, was a, that was the most they could kind of wrap their brains around uh, design. Cultural is another, diff- another difficult thing for me. And, you know, God had made me this way, but I don't really fit in this world. And I remember having a very um, painful conversation with my mom, telling her that I think God made a mistake making me the way I was. That's how sort of deep-rooted my pains were um, with my ethnic background. And then as a Christian, you know, I felt branded, right? I felt like here I am in this world, and, and I go to church, and I, you know, I, and I, on occasion, like, read my Bible and, and, you know, sort of hold people to a moral standard, which I was hypocritical about. But people kind of saw me as a Christian. And, uh, uh, and I was really confused about what to do with that. So I struggled for many years. And um, but it wasn't until uh, I went to a church camp and, you know, threw a stick in a fire and walked up and, you know, did all this sort of thing. But it was actually the first time that I really made a uh, solid decision to uh, follow Christ. And this verse had a very uh, huge impact in my life. Let me read it. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And it really was that verse that was pivotal in my uh, conversion. I, I really do believe I believe in Christ earlier, but it really was that moment where I realized that trust came into the picture, where I really could um, trust this sort of uh, all-knowing, smarter guy to, to that knew me and could care for me, and I just had to trust that you know someone smarter than me is going to take care of my needs, and and built me in a way that was purposeful. So you know I started to build trust, and eventually it turned more permanent. But you know, even as uh, I developed a more of a deeper relationship with, with Jesus, I realized that you know what, life's still tough, and there's still a lot of decisions, and a lot of confusion, and a lot of difficulty. Um, but you know. Even amidst all the decision-making, where I ended up was I was able to return back to this and to have a, finally find a place where I had a father who could walk me through life and could help teach me about the facts of life and about the sex question and about how to do this and that. And so um, it, it, of course, hasn't always been easy, but... Uh, I'm grateful to had the journey so far. Uh, so I went out to college and went to the University of North Texas. Any me green eagles out there? Yeah, I know. <clears throat> I threw that in just for you guys. Uh, in fact, this might be Shay. I don't know, but uh, so at, as uh, I, got, I mentioned earlier, I was involved with the Campus Crusade, and there was a bunch of crazies in Campus Crusade, right? They're all like gung ho and just they're nuts. But uh, uh, I loved Campus Crusade because that was really the first time I learned about pr- just really taking my faith seriously, praying, getting discipled, first, you know, first time sharing my faith, going into missions, um, and just uh, learning the value of discipleship. And, and then particularly for me, one of the first times that I really stepped into this whole journey of leadership 
and uh, what that meant and just the, the steps of it and the incredible potential of it. <clears throat> well, after crusade, I realized, you know, I'm not going to do crusade for the rest of my life, so what am I going to do? Well, I'll reluctantly drag myself to church. And I was like, uh, you know, yeah, I guess I'll do this church thing, whatever that is. But church ended up being kind of cool because, you know, you get to do crazy stuff and, you know, it ended up being kind of fun. And so, you know, that's me being crazy and that's where I got to meet this guy. And, uh, you know, but it was, it was at, it was, <laughs> that was uh, us being Braveheart, by the way. So, <clears throat> but the church journey was really interesting to me because, you know, it was where I uh, really started deeply wrestling with what does it mean to be a leader? What, is, what does that mean? Is it someone who's like a spiritualist or maybe it's someone like that's uh, influential dictator type or maybe it's a rebel or maybe it's a coach or maybe it's a, you know, or maybe it's a crazy. I don't know. You know, you get, it's all kinds of leaders out there, right? And even as an artist, I ask myself, you know, is it, is it, a, is it about, as an artist leader, is it about being, uh, you know, eclectic, or is it about being innovative? Is it about being cause-driven? I don't know. So this leadership journey was, uh, has been a very interesting, that has, I've, while I've inhabited many different roles, the leadership journey has been um, kind of weaving throughout, woven throughout my, my uh, career uh, in the church. And what I found is that while uh, everyone, in, or while leaders here invite you all to come join the, the, the road trip of leadership, the reality is that the road trip does, really looks all scenic and um, uh, inviting like this one, but, you know, it's more confusing, right? It's more, the leadership journey is very different for everybody, <clears throat> So one of my goals today is to help unpack what does it mean to be a leader, to sort of break it down a little bit and sort of give you some parts to look at. It's, what I'm going to share is not comprehensive by any means. All I want to do is just sort of take everything apart and just look at a few of them, and, and I'm actually not going to give so many answers as to facilitate you guys to have some things to talk about. So when you go back into your you know, other workshops or your team meetings or whatever it is, your discussions, that you have some, think, some things to dialogue about. Because leadership is uh, it's a funny thing, right? It's, it's a bunch of chiefs, and it's a lot of people who say they know what they're doing, but in reality, no, none of us know what we're doing. And the scary thing about leadership is that very quickly, it, it's, the, the idea of leadership is very uh, intoxicating. And the whole idea of, hey, let's rally together and let's change the world. Um, very intoxicating, but uh, gone un... Uh, when you're, if you're not being intentional about it, very easily uh, leadership can really turn from that into something that is uh, filled with conflict and filled with pain and disillusionment. And anyone who's led in any capacity inside the church or out knows this, that leadership can be a very painful thing. And so... Leadership can go from being a team of people that are working together in harmony to a tug-of-war. And uh, I've been in great environments where the best leadership culture 
shifted from uh, the team-based, loving approach to a tug-of-war sort of environment. And you may have been there in churches or in other corporate environments where that's, that's happened. And the worst part about it is that the, th- the most damaging thing that happens is relationships, the loss of relationships. Not only with each other, but then there's also a relationship disconnect with God whenever you experience those kind of situations. And so um, I, I'm not sure of the... Uh, the Brad and I have stayed connected, but we haven't spent a lot of time talking about what is the leadership culture here. So I don't really know. It could be a very healthy dynamic, or it could be struggling, or it could have its ups and downs. Um, but my uh, goal here is that as healthy and robust as leaders are, the leadership culture is very fragile. It doesn't matter where you are and, and who you work for, corporate, nonprofit, or the church, you can have very healthy, strong leaders, but the leadership culture is, is, will always be fragile. It has to be cared for and nurtured and has to be well-led. And so um, what I want to help make sure happens is that, you know, the leaders are on the front of the boat all smiling and laughing while the inevitable happens, okay? And so all I want to do is just, again, provide a few things to, to, to sort of discuss around. And we're talking about four things. Four things. We're going to talk about uh, meetings and leadings, innovations, and incompetencies. So first one about meetings. Okay, so you're asking yourself, well, geez, why are we, we're talking about leadership, and and why bring up this this concept of meetings? Well, meetings is something, it's it's an unavoidable reality of our everyday lives. Whether you, it doesn't matter who you work for, um, meetings are a part of your culture. Whether it's at work or volunteers at church or you meet with teams or uh, everything you do is some way related to meetings. Even a small group is a meeting. When, when you and I meet together one-on-one, it's a meeting. When someone's standing up here and speaking to 1,200 people, that basically is a meeting. And so as a leader, you cannot escape the culture of meetings. But unfortunately, the uh, status quo of meetings for most people is, is or the, the uh, this perspective on meetings is very low. And I cannot tell you uh, how uh, just, it drives me insane how churches are the worst at meetings. We, we're, we love calling meetings and getting people together, but ultimately, Meetings are really pointless, and they're, they're slow, and they're unintentional, and they're uh, boring, and, you know, the, the meeting piece uh, is, is a very difficult part for a lot of people. And not because they can't do it, but because they don't see the value in it. And so all I want to do is raise a couple of ideas around the meeting culture. Um, I truly do believe that to have someone's undivided attention for however long, whether it's five minutes or 60 minutes or two hours, it's a huge privilege as a leader to be able to communicate something to uh, 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 an undivided attention audience is a huge privilege. And, uh, we, but we really don't see it that way. We kind of see it as a, a means to the ends, and it's sort of a tool to the task. And, and so we gather people together, and we sort of uh, stumble our way through uh, meetings. Nancy Ortberg uh, said, if you can't lead 
if you can't lead great meetings, you don't deserve to be a leader. Okay, she's throwing the gauntlet down. And because uh, ultimately, all we do as leaders is have meetings. That's basically all we do. A few of us have a chance to sort of like uh, dream and vision and, and do all that. Uh, some of us maybe gravitate more towards like emails and doing more administrative stuff. But ultimately, any leader that's worth his own weight in salt leads meetings. And so one thing I want to uh, throw out to you guys is the value of leading meetings well and the importance of, of being intentional about your meetings, that people understand there's clarity, there's vision, there's creativity, and there's fun in your meetings. The, uh, and what does that take? It basically takes design. And, you know, design is a behavior. It's not a creative element. Design is a behavior. And, and, and simply all that means is that uh, before you have a meeting, you sit down, whether it's, and we're talking like a day or two out, and you design your meetings in a way that is inspiring, in a way that hits your objectives, the way that... Uh, um, really brings clarity to your team. Again, this, can, this may be, again, small group environment. This may be like a huddle for kids' ministry. It may be creative brainstorming for the, the arts team or music team. But design your meetings because this happens all the time in churches. As a leader, I'm thinking, oh, i got so much I'm working on and I'm doing and, and whatever. People are coming like in five minutes. What am I going to do? Okay, I'm going to... Right, okay, cover these things, and people get together, and um, we all sit around a table, and, okay, so how is everyone's week, you know, and then, you know, the same, like, three people share, and then, okay, so this is what we're going to talk about, and then it go, kind of goes from a philosophical to strategic and back and forth to gossip to, you know, it kind of goes all the way around, and then, hey, here's a couple things, and then there's sort of like a half-efforted, like, brainstorming sort of session that leads to the why and how come we're doing this and how come we're doing that and then all right let's pray and you pray and then you move forward and the unfortunate results is that people don't leave inspired they don't feel like that they're um, impassioned they don't feel like they're well directed and what ends up happening is you create a culture of people that really resent meetings and just feel like that they they equal uh, meetings as a um, a real negative experience in your community, in your culture. And again, if your leadership is really marked by great meetings and people don't like going to meetings, that's a bad thing. And uh, uh, so I, I'm not going to, I can't go into fully detail right now about what some of those components are about meetings. And again, in, in the uh, breakout, I'm going to share more details and, and all that. But um, that is a huge piece of your leadership is doing meetings well. Let me share a little bit about in our community at New Song and the, the staff that I work with. I oversee the, the entire staff of, uh, at New Song and our volunteer staff as well. Um, we have a no mandatory meeting policy. And so what that means, we have a lot of meetings. We, do, we have them often, and they're very potent and powerful. Um, but you know what we do is we say they are not mandatory. No meetings are mandatory. I don't have the power to call a mandatory meeting with anybody, okay? So I say, hey, we're doing a, we're doing a update meeting on this event, and this event may require 12 people to be there, but every person that is invited to that meeting has the option to say no. 
And so that does a, that does a few things. First of all, it, it puts the responsibility and the leadership on every individual leader because they need to go and find out that information. They, they're not going to be spoon-fed it. They're not going to be force-fed it. They need to take self-responsibility and leadership to find out what they need to know. Secondly, it puts a huge responsibility on the person that's leading the meetings, okay? If you don't put on a great meeting uh, every time, or at least for a, a, a series of times, if you have a, one terrible meeting, especially early on, how willing are people going to be to come back to your meeting? And so it puts enormous responsibility on yourself to lead meetings well. Uh, secondly, or thirdly, if I'm saying no to a bunch of meetings, like no, 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 when it's time for me to put on a meeting, are people going to be that eager to come to my meetings? And so it puts a collective responsibility on the group. The group is, is, is dependent on each other to keep people informed and to keep people led. But believe me, if anyone here is questioning, am I a good leader when it comes to meetings? Well, call a meeting that's non-mandatory, and if no one shows up, then that's saying something huge about your leadership. And so uh, I'm not saying that this is something that you have to do here, but I'm just saying that this puts it into practice, that we take advantage of our meetings. It's our most valuable time as leaders is meetings. And that, that 60 minutes, when I walk into a meeting, I expect if I'm putting it on or the person's putting it on, that 60 minutes is the most valuable 60 minutes of my week. That's how high the, the bar is. It doesn't mean like high production and it doesn't mean like all sort of whatever. It just means someone's intentionally thinking about it and thinking about it with me in mind and thinking about, about the goal in mind and crafting it. They look all, they look all different kinds of ways. I'm getting, I could share that at a um, workshop later on. And so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to ask you to rate yourself. You, have, you should have been given a sheet of paper. And all we do is just put a, put a number on it. Whether you attend meetings and we'll, we'll kind of localize it to the church. But whether you attend meetings or if you um, lead meetings, everyone attends, attends meetings, put one number on it, in, in, in one, to, one to five, and five being excellent, and three is good, and one is poor. And just rate, rate yourself and your perspective about me, the meeting culture and say, yeah, the meetings I go to are, you know, they're pretty good, they're above average, or maybe they're good, or maybe they're really poor. And uh, be honest, be brutally honest, and use this as a, again, a, a point of inter interaction as you talk, talk, talk to the leaders. Because you and someone else is another, um, maybe it's a small group coach uh, sort of relationship. You, know, you can say, hey, what do you think about, what, where do you think we're at on the meeting level? And the leader may say, oh, it's a four. And the tender may say, oh, it's a one. And so that's some good possible conversation to emerge out of that. Okay, so I'm going to start moving into a little bit more, less practical, a little more concept-wise. Uh, leadings. And uh, talking about um, directional, how you lead directionally. So here's another question. Which team is number one in the area of priority for you? There's two different teams everyone's a part of. First team is a team that you uh, lead. And so uh, you may be... Uh, leading a small group, you may be leading a classroom, you may be leading a group of volunteers, you may be leading a creative arts, musicians, artists. There's a, there's a team that you lead, and then there's a team that you serve. Okay, there's, a, there's some sort of, 
you know, boss or authority or uh, someone that you're answering to, right? That's two different teams. And so I want you to write a, uh, an image down, or I'm asking a question to respond to on your paper. Um, when you look at your priority of your week and uh, importance of your week, which is the most important to you when it comes to time, attention, focus, energy, the team that you lead or the team that you serve? So you just answer once and just indicate it with an arrow down or arrow up. It's a little bit of archaic, but just arrow down, arrow up. Just give one answer. Which is your most important team to you? The team that you serve, you know, the shepherd, lead, or the team that you sort of answer to? <clears throat> Okay, so I am, um, uh, for many, many, many years, I served uh, with one specific answer. It was a team that I served, right? The volunteers I was with, the, uh, the teams I've shepherded, and the, uh, the young leaders that I was with. But I'm actually proposing that uh, your actually most important team is the team that uh, you serve versus the team that you lead. And... Uh, the reason why is, as a leader of any group, we want to do, um, you know, we want to help this team. We want to uh, help them, you know, problem solve, answer their emails, uh, remove the obstacles. We want to get people aligned with gifting. We want to, you know, get everything all aligned there, right? Every once in a while, we connect with the, the team that, you know, you, um, you serve and you give updates and kind of what's going on. Well, the problem with, with that model is that when we're over here, the collective vision of the group is kind of at a 5,000-foot level, right? They're, they're taking care of their immediate problems. Every once in a while, we kind of touch base with the team that we uh, serve and at the 10,000-foot. But the problem is that if you accomplish everything you're going to accomplish in a given week with that team, loving, shepherding, leading, your vision stays at this level. But if your priority is to make sure that, yeah, you got to help this team out, but if you're going to hit anything, you need to make sure that your priority is a team that you serve, the person that you serve or the team that you serve. Because if you can accomplish that, then at the end of the week and end of the day, your vision stays, ends up here at the 10,000-foot level. Now imagine if everyone in the organization from very sort of bottom all the way up to the top, if they were committed to fulfilling the vision of the person above them. Imagine what that would do to the entire organization, where it's the, the collective vision of the entire of leadership culture rises up. Because when you engage in uh, uh, the leadership conversation up here, it naturally stretches you, it empowers you, you, um, you understand more, you believe more, you're less critical, you're in the know, you just are, you are in a much healthier place as a leader. It's stretching because you're naturally gravitating over here and you want to sort of take care of your corner of the pie. But if you can live in this world to help this person, if everyone in the organization can do this, then it'll, be, it'll unleash a huge amount of horsepower for potential within the team. Very difficult to do. It's very counterintuitive because in a given week, you're just thinking, man, I'm going to help this group out. I'm going to just sort of, you know, solve the problems here. But 
Imagine if, and for, for anyone here who's a team leader of any sort, the director or a coach or, you know, small group leader or whatever that is, and I, this actually really applies to small groups. Imagine if everyone that's on your team throughout the week sent at least one email or phone call that said, what can I help you with today to help, help you fulfill your vision? What can, I, what can I, you know, what can I take off your plate? Okay, that never happens, right? The teams that I've led before in the past, they never called me up and said, hey, what can I do to help you? They always call me to say, hey, help me with this. I, I can't, you know, this, I have a problem with this person, and I can't get my Wi-Fi connected, and I can't get this, where's the email? What's going to happen with this, you know, with this sermon series? So they're all demanding, right? But imagine if everyone on your team is actually looking up and asking, how can I help solve your problems? It creates a huge amount of new health and vitality in the sort of leadership machine. Again, it's very counterintuitive because everyone's dragging you back into sort of the 5,000-foot level. It's important. I'm not saying it's not important, but something to consider and think about. And so even with the arrows that you, that, that you drew, um, again, good d- dialogue with you and your leader or if, uh, you and the person that you uh, serve to say, hey, where do you think, which direction is your arrow going? And there's just something to d- dialogue about. And so, uh, again, uh, that's just something that in, in our culture we try to promote, that when you come on, your primary team is the team that you serve. It's not the team that you lead. And it's hard, but, again, if you can just create this sort of regular expectation of helping the team that you serve, the entire organization benefits from that. The church will benefit from that. It creates a me as a number two um, uh, position and it helps you create a value for being a number two instead of being a number one. It's a very uh, humbling experience, and it uh, creates a lot of team value uh, to the culture because we isolate ourselves way too much. Okay, the other part of uh, leading in relationship to that, and the reason why the leading up is so, or leading uh, the team that are, or serving team that you uh, that you serve, is the whole idea of leading up as well. So there's a couple of different ways that we all lead in our own respective areas. We hunker down and just work hard, right? We work like crazy, and we're like, you know, I'm going to create this small group or this event or um, this classroom experience or this mission event, whatever. And we, we work like crazy, like dogs, in order to um, garner the attention and the credibility of um, those that uh, we serve. And... For years, I, you know, I lived like this, right? I just worked like crazy, and as I mentioned, as uh, Slane mentioned earlier, did a lot of creative arts, and so, you know, technical stuff, and videos, and dramas, and choreographed, and music, and, you know, I just worked like my fingers to the bones to uh, champion the artistic movement in our church. And because I felt like, you know what, if I can just do this well, and work hard, and do this well, that, that the uh, value of the arts is going to sort of elevate up throughout the organization. And I really found out that that does not happen very easily. And so leading up is an, a more important or more strategic way to do this. And leading up basically means you are being intentional to cast a vision of your ministry to those above you. And we don't do this very often. We, usually the only time we intersect with anyone that is... Uh, in leadership above us is because there's a problem, there's a need, 
there, I can't stand this guy that I'm working with, or I don't have enough money, or, um, you know, we, they're just problems. Leading up is a very huge part of anyone's leadership, and all leading up is uh, we do a great job leading down, we do a pretty good job leading to our peers, but typically we do a very poor job leading up. And leading, all leading up is just, we're just, empower, we're just um, empowering the vision of whatever ministry is to those that, those that uh, oversee us. And so all that is is just me being intentional about connecting with someone that, um, that's leading me. We sit down, and I just share why is the art so important to the church. Now, that seems sort of, I'm thinking, well, people should just know this. I mean, like, we do it all the time, and it's an important value. No, this, that's not the case. The leaders that, that lead you, they know your world one-tenth, maybe one-tenth of, of how much you know your own world. And so they're all, like, trying to solve bigger problems, 10,000-foot-level problems, and dealing with all kinds of issues and whatever. But very rarely are they really intentionally thinking about the, um, your, your community or your, you know, your environment. And so you have to take time to lead up. And that's just, you know, you're casting vision, you're explaining, like, the potential, you're, uh, you're really sort of shaping the future of whatever ministry that is to that person. Because we, we just don't do that intentionally. We just sort of wait till there's a conflict and there's a time for reevaluation, and then we sort of, it kind of spills out in the conversation. But we very rarely do we take regular intervals to cast a vision for what you do. And so Gary Hamill uh, says, uh, <clears throat> listen to renegades, dissidents, and positive deviants in your group. The future has already happened, but it's unequally distributed among a few. And all he's saying there is that, you know, there are futurists in our crowd. There are many futurists in this room. And what I mean by that is people that already sort of see the future. They know where the, the well is going to be a year from now or two years from now. They sort of see that. And they see this cause. And, uh, you know, Brad was sharing with me the, um, the partnership you guys have. I guess a nonprofit with partnering with schools. What's the name of that? EMP. Um, well, there was a futurist involved in the creation of that that said, you know what, I can see the church partnering with schools all, all in the counties all over the place. So there was a futurist somewhere in there that, that really saw that reality. So someone sat down and said, you know, this is sound crazy, but I really see this future and this is why. Well, that, that conversation rarely happens and it usually only happens in crisis mode. It's not the healthiest place for that to happen. And so for the futurists in this room, be intentional about casting vision to the right people at the right time, which is usually often and usually reg- regularly. Okay, I'm going to move on. I'm dragging a little bit. So um, our next thing is to talk about innovations. We're going to move more into concepts here. Um, so in the area of innovation, we, unfortunately, the church is um, plagued with factory workers. Okay, we have, um, uh, by nature, because of how churches are set up, we draw in and really facilitate factory worker-type work. And the reason why is that as followers of Christ, we just, by nature, attract followers. We are people of followers, okay? We're not a people of leaders. The church is actually very poor at developing leaders. It doesn't matter. I mean, this church may be good at developing leaders and a few here and there, but the reality is that the church in general is very poor at developing leaders. We're great at developing followers, 
Um, but if you imagine uh, anyone who's been relatively new to the Christian community, when you step into it, what are you thinking about? Well, what's the language? How do I fit in? How do I uh, blend in? How, how do I uh, not stand out in this community? But how, if I become a follower of Christ, what are sort of the hoops that I have to jump through to sort of, you know, go in the flow? And so we, from the very onset of Christianity, we produce followers, which I'm not talking about uh, morality things and all that. I'm just talking about the culture of it is factory worker sort of thing, where this is my role, and as things come down assembly line, I sort of hammer it, and I bottle it up, and I move on, and the next thing. And so uh, Seth Godin talks about a factory worker stuff in his book's Tribes. He says, yes, factories are efficient, but, they're really, but the really boring factory jobs are actually compelling to a lot of people. They don't require initiative or innovation. They, f- they feel low risk. They promise that if you do what you're told, you get paid. It's comfortable and safe. At, at least it feels that way until the factory gets shut down. Then you have, as we now have in Michigan, hundreds of thousands of factory workers feeling the very fabric of their lives ripped apart. So, um, you know, we, as followers, we like factory work. We like to know what the expectations are, what the end results are, and we like to sort of live in factory work uh, sort of mentality. But when it comes to the whole uh, concept of innovation, this is where innovation and factory work sort of collide. And so why is it so difficult as a community of leaders to really embrace innovation? Well, there's a reason why for that. And so I'm going to have you take your sheet of paper back out. And I want everyone to partner up with somebody, okay? And uh, so just real quickly say, you know, hey, partner, whatever. Okay, uh, so this is what I want you to do with your sheet of paper. In the spirit of innovation, I want you both at the same time to draw a portrait of each other. All right, so take, we need some music for this. We're going to take like two minutes. I want you to draw a portrait of each other. Everyone's got to do this. So everyone do this. Don't show each other, don't show each other if you can. Just sort of try to keep it secret if you can. Okay, another minute, one minute. Okay, 30 seconds. Okay, three, two, one. Okay, reveal your artwork to each other. (laughs) 
Okay, let's bring, it, let's bring it back. Okay, it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter where you do this exercise, right? Any country, any culture, any demographic, any group of people, you get the exact same results. I overheard someone say, "I can't draw," and I overheard someone say, uh, "You know, like there's a lot of laughter, there's a lot of apologies, there's a lot of I'm, a lot of I'm sorry's." And so you get this a lot, right? And, and the reason why is that, you know, uh, we are very aware of our abilities. And uh, when we basically try to draw, a few of us might be gifted artists, but a majority of us are not. And so, um, you know, unlike my daughter, who freely draws me all the time and draws me poorly, but she does it with proudly and she does it frequently because she knows that it's not about what I think about it. It's about what she thinks about it. But... For us as adults, we are terribly insecure. We're terribly insecure with ourselves. And uh, anytime we do something as simple as a portrait, which who expects, you know, a Mona Lisa with a simple drawing? But we put that expectation on ourselves. Or if it's something very complex, we live very insecurely. And so the thing that, a couple things that sort of, the, the fears that rise up in each of us as leaders is the feeling that I'm, you know, uh, incompetent in what I'm doing or the feeling that uh, I'm not skilled enough at what I'm doing. And so, you know, the, a, a majority of us as leaders kind of go through our leadership, and we tell ourselves, you know, if people really knew what was inside of me, if they knew what I was thinking, and they knew what I did last night, and they knew sort of my beliefs, what I think about whatever, they would think I'm a fraud. And so there's a, there's a terrible sense of insecurity that, that most leaders have. From the very beginning. And so, uh, uh, unlike my daughter, who doesn't can care less about what I think, she's drawing freely and she's having a great time with it, but somehow in our journey as leaders, as adults, we become very aware of what other people think, and it becomes very difficult to then translate that into innovation. It's very hard to create a culture of innovation when you're very insecure about what you think and very aware of what other people think. The, the, uh, and I can go on and on about the educational system, but ultimately, as great as the American education system is, it is a complex pro- system of trying to figure out what the, teach- the answer teacher wants, not really what you want to pro- answer you want to provide. So what ends up happening is that that permeates everything that we do, uh, especially in the leadership cultures. We're just sort of thinking, what does that person, the answer that person wants, Versus what is a truly a genuine idea that I feel like I can bring to the table. But the problem is that we are living in a new environment, clearly in a new environment, in a new age. There is, uh, there's no return to sort of the old normal. And I'm talk- talking about like the current economy and the current crisis and the current difficulties. There's not an old normal, there's just a new normal. And the new normal requires for uh, radical innovation and radical ideology especially for the church. Because, you know, success is a self-inventing strategy that you cannot, as a church, regardless of how fast you're growing and regardless of what's happening here, and, I'm, and of course I'm talking sort of on a humanly perspective, I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit thing, but if a church cannot evolve and innovate with the culture, then irrelevancy is just right around the corner. It's right there. And, uh, uh, you know, I've seen it happen way too many times that churches, like, they just climb and climb and climb at about 10 years, and then they, they basically say, you know what, 
what we've decided and what we've done is good enough, and we're just going to keep reproducing this over and over again. And what ends up happening is that the decline, the decline is uh, long and painful and not enjoyable um, because churches have sort of let go of this sort of idea of innovating. And so more than ever, our, our uh, communities is dependent on churches to innovate and to leaders to innovate, to bring new ideas to the table. For us, the... Um, uh, in, our, in our team, there's two big uh, values for our team, ideas and health. This is, these are two big measurables for our team. And when I say team, paid and, and non-paid. That you bring ideas and health to the table. It's not your, about your skills. It's not about your charisma. It's not about whatever. It's that you bring ideas to the table. That's your biggest commodity. And the church has not done a great job at this. Um, it's just... It's because we are naturally a group of followers, we're, and we're thinking of past successes and past rhythms and strategies, and we very rarely want to innovate. And the reason why we don't innovate is because we are terribly insecure with ourselves, and we're highly aware what other people think of us, and we don't want to break out of the follower mode. We don't want to be like, like um, Gary Hamill talks about as far as the dissidents and the, um, the radicals. So again, I'll talk about more about that, unpack that more later. But Seth Godin also talk, talks about the riskiest thing you can do is to be safe, and the safest thing you can do is to innovate. So, I, so you know, a good conversation to have is how to encourage and facilitate real innovation within your teams, where ideas are valued, uh, a lot of ideas, radical ideas, and doing um, the best you can to minimize insecurity and criticism within your team. Okay, that's a lot of steps to that, but uh, something to think about. Okay, lastly, um, how am I doing on time here? Doing okay? What am I doing? Oh, hurry. Uh, lastly, incompetencies. Okay, so incompetence has a bad rap. When we think of incompetence, we think of, you know, certain kinds of leaders, right? No one, none of us want to be an incompetent leader, incompetent troublemaker. Because you know what we want? We want champions. We want, like, you know, trophies, and we want people that are really good at what they're doing. And, you know, even when we recruit leaders, whether it's paid or not paid volunteers or whatever, we want to find not just leaders that are good at what we do, we want those that can achieve the impossible, right? Those people that can go out and have done what no one else has done before, and those are the kind of people that we want to bring into our community. <clears throat> and what I'm proposing is that incompetency has an amazing amount of beauty to it. Um, unleashed potential is found within incompetencies. And the difference between incompetence and, uh, or I'm sorry, competence leadership and what I believe is incompetence leadership is the difference between skill set and mindset. Skill set is leaders that are really known for what they really are good at, okay? If I'm a, if I'm a competent leader, I'm good at, you know, organizing systems, I'm good at uh, playing the guitar, I'm good at leading worship, I'm good at editing videos, I'm good at leading a small group, and skill set based leadership. Uh, there was a time for that in the church, probably a decade or two ago, but incompetent leadership is about mindset. It's about uh, someone saying, you know what, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm going to fully throw myself into this role and I'm going to figure it out. And in this sort of ever-changing, shaping world and economy, especially within the church, the church desperately needs leaders with the right mindset versus the right skill set. Because the problem is that once, you, once the, the environment changes, 
for those that are in the skill set arena, as soon as uh, you're not good enough or as soon as someone else is good enough or your skill is not needed anymore, well, your sort of role in the, in the leadership culture is basically dismissed. Someone that's of mindset value, flexing, changing, adapting, uh, engaging, uh, you know, even areas of pain, discomfort, those people will always be valued in on a team because it's not identified with skill set. And so, uh, uh, you know, something that, that we, uh, again, embrace in our community is this whole idea of incompetent troublemaker, being someone who is, um, has no idea how to do things but is just willing to throw themselves into it and to just full force say, you know what, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to learn it and um, we have very few uh, uh, people that are really known for one sort of skill set, but really just a, a mindset of leadership. And so, you know, a question we ask ourselves a lot is, is what did you fail in this week? Okay, we want to hear some failures. I want to hear about your victories. I want to hear what you failed in and be proud at that. Uh, you know, because we, we, we spend a lot of our time hiding sort of the things that we failed in. But when we want to celebrate failure because it's through a multiple fail- failures that real innovation occurs. And so try a lot of things, try a lot of um, crazy things, fail, 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 fail. Eventually one of those failures will turn into real gold. But every major innovation in the world out there, in the church and outside of the church, only happen in the environment of a lot of failures. Uh, the troublemaker part is the whole idea of asking a lot of questions, being a skeptic, being the dissidents and troublemaker, right? It's not, it, it's not uh, uh, accepting the status quo. You know, the whole, uh, this, why do we do it this way? Because this is the way we always do it. That is the status quo killer, okay? Uh, or I'm sorry, not uh, talking like that is the status quo champion. The status quo killer is saying, you know what? We can't do this anymore this way. We're going to have to do it a different way. And... Uh, unfortunately, we see troublemakers as cynics. And I'm not saying be cynic, but I'm saying be skeptical. And everything you do should be questioned. Every, there should be no sacred cows apart from biblical values. Um, and there should be nothing that is um, uh, taboo to question. Be a troublemaker. And man, we celebrate that and we hire people that are troublemakers, that are just asking a lot of questions and revaluing everything we do. And there's nothing that is like, this is the way we've always done it, and this is the way we're going to do it. We want people that are troublemakers, and we love it. It's, it's great. It's, it creates a, a real fun environment. But the truth is that incompetent troublemakers are um, great because very few of us can be, you know, action heroes, right? Very few of us can, like, sort of storm the hill and lead the army and be real charismatic up front. But most of us, all of us, I'd say, can be incompetent troublemakers, people that are quiet rebels that say, you know what, I'm going to take a stand. Someone's got to take a stand and say no, and that's going to be me. And I'm going to step up, and um, in my sort of incompetence, in my troublemaker mode, I'm going to ask those questions. And I'm going to say, you know what, there's there's some different ways to do this. Um, You know, a verse that that has really powered me through this sort of idea of incompetent leadership is that 2 Timothy, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of truth, power, and self-control. We're not, we should not be timid leaders. Okay, there's no reason in the world we should be timid about our leadership. 
We should be leading in truth and power and self-control. I love to put self-control in there because we can't be crazies, right? But lead with courage. And it's hard to do that, but you have to lead with courage as, a, as an incompetent leader. Um, man, I love YouTube. I love, uh, in conclusion, I love YouTube. There is an endless amount of sea of resources, and, and, and competent leadership is really reflected strongly on YouTube because it's not about professional production and, you know, well-thought-out, directed sort of masterpieces. It's a bunch of incompetent troublemakers sort of putting their art for the world to see and to use. And that's what the economy of influence has changed dramatically to where those that are incompetent can really put their work up on the, on the web and it really impacts people in a whole new way that's just generations never seen before. And so to conclude, I have a video that I'm going to show, uh, we're going to watch that basically sort of illustrates what it means to be an incompetent leader, and then I'm going to close. So check this out. All right. All right, well, crazy, right? Um, I'm not sure exactly what kind of uh, rally that was, especially with the guy with the red spandex uh, speedo. But <clears throat> so um, the reason why I showed you that is that that's a very good illustration of incompetent leadership. So here's uh, you know here's here's Brad right, and he's all like working it, you know, and he's all like he's doing his thing, and you know he's he's like dancing all around and all that, and you know it's it looks very foolish. And you notice the video was just long enough to feel that sort of awkward feeling in your heart, you know, when you're watching it. You're like, ooh, what's going on? But Brad is out there, and he's, man, he is dancing to his own tune and doing his own thing and working his own moves, and he's doing every, he's pulling everything out of the repertoire, right? <clears throat> well, if you notice in the video, the number two guy came along, and he's dancing with them, and they kind of had a weird, like, moment where they're holding hands and whatever. <laughs> And they're dancing, and you know what? Unfortunately, number two did not make it look any less awkward. In fact, it kind of increased the awkwardness a little bit. <laughs> and uh, um, it didn't really do anything. It really didn't do anything. It wasn't until number three came along that really changed everything. When three came along, that gave the crowd permission to join, and everything changed at that point. So in the church... Here's Brad doing his thing, looking like a fool. Number two, the staff comes along and they do their thing too. They're dancing alongside, they're mimicking, they're doing their best, pulling out their best moves. But that actually does nothing to influence the crowd. What the game changer is number three. That is you all. The, the volunteer leaders of our church, you're the number three person in the movement of, or in, to create the movement. Number three, all number two there is there for is to give permission for number three. Okay? That's all number two is there for. Number two is not there to bring the crowds and to rally and to do all that. And even number one cannot do that. It all comes down to the number three person to come in and basically join and mimic and be incompetent. And then at that point, that gives permission for the entire crowd to join. And what's interesting is that, uh, you know, num being a number two person, the staff, is not much different than being the number one person when it comes to the movement. At the same side, being a number three person is drastically different than being number uh, 
30 or 40 or 100. Those people don't even matter. They don't, the 100th person does not change the movement at all. I mean, may, you, maybe the guy in the red speedo might, but, <laughs> but that does not change the movement at all, right? It's number three that changes everything. And, and I'm proposing that this group is the number three person in the leadership culture, that you have the power and ability to change everything through the power of the Holy Spirit, leading with incompetence, being an incompetent troublemaker, you have the ability to cause radical movements that changes everything. And we have sort of a mystique, and we look at leaders like Brad and Slade and Shay and others, and we say, you know what? You guys are doing it. You guys are leading, and so lead us, and we'll follow kind of thing. And yet, to a certain degree, that's, we, we kind of have to, they have to give permission. They have to sort of model it. But ultimately, nothing changes until number three, you guys come along and actually do it. And so uh, my hope and my goal for this group is that you really develop a heart value for being an incompetent troublemaker. That your desire is to really see yourself as the, the number three guy that can change a movement, but more importantly, maybe change the world. So let me pray for you guys, and I'll be done. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, this time to gather with leaders. Thank you, Father, for the immense um, leadership that's present in this room. Leaders that um, have all unique journeys, like my own, and everyone here has a unique journey of their own. And I thank you, Father, that you've brought him, each person here, to a place to lead in a way that is incompetent, lead in a way that's as a troublemaker, lead as a dissident and a radical and a revolutionary. Father, we just, um, we don't want to do anything outside of your Holy Spirit. And we, we truly believe that the church is dependent on your spirit to move mightily. But we know that your first line of defense, your, your first team, your varsity team, is leaders. You're, and it's the leaders that that um, change the culture, change the movement, and change the world. Father, empower us all to be great number three um, leaders, where we can see um, leaders leading courageously, and we join in with full incompetence and with a full troublemaker sort of spirit. And we pray that you would use and and honor that um, act of courage and really use it to shape Um, not just shape things locally, but shape things locally, shape things globally, shape things online. Um, I pray for special blessing on this group of leaders and pray that uh, you would uh, continually protect and help nurture the culture of leadership here and pray that it would be a team of leaders that are mutually submit to each other, that are great uh, number two men to others, Um, that serve the people that they lead and uh, that really love you with great character and um, with great commitment to your word. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity and uh, pray that your special blessing on this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Tony. Good stuff. Uh, man, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Good to get in somebody that has a right brains world for a little bit. For me, that's tough, but man, that was super helpful. And man, as you start seeing it, that's uh, that's good. So, uh, Tony, thanks, man. The, the the meeting stuff was convicting for me. Uh, the mindset, skill stuff, skill set, mindset stuff was was super helpful. So I hope you guys had some stuff like that that you took away, other than wear a red speedo. Um, though that's good too, right? 
Uh, let's do this. Uh, if you guys want to head back to the back, grab a snack or whatever, our breakouts are immediately falling. They will be up on the screen. So if you want to see the first session breakout schedule, you've got them in your pamphlet. As well as up here, the room assignments are next to the deal. So you see the map and everything. It's right there. Uh, we're just a tad behind. So if you guys will hustle up to your room, so we'll, we'll, we'll play catch up in the break, if you will. Uh, so first breakout session right now. Thank you, guys.